This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 23rd of May 2017, a podcast about Apache Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anyone working with or investigating big data. My name is Dave, and here is my co-host, Jon. Hello, Good Dave. Good morning, Jon. Good morning, Dave. Well, it's almost afternoon here, but uh, how are you? I'm good. I'm very good. You have to do your best behavior this episode because we have somebody listening in. We have a guest. Don't, don't, Say don't hello. No, no, don't, don't. Say wait, hello. Wait, wait. Oh, really? We're going to hide it? Nah, too late now. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Hi, guys. Here's Bernard. So, yes, we have a special guest uh, breaking the fourth wall here. We're recording a variety of things in and out of sequence. Um, so we've got Bernard joining us. Uh, for the news section, and uh, you'll hear an interview with him talking about, well, maybe we won't tell you what he's going to be talking about, um, but he's going to be talking about an exciting topic coming up in a future episode. Um, but for now, let's uh, let's get things kicked off. Um, we have a raffle, or we've been running a raffle, um, for a ticket to the DataWorks Summit San Jose. Uh, we announced the winners, Mohamed Ansari, um, on the last episode. Unfortunately, Mohamed could not take uh, the ticket, couldn't claim the prize. So, in that case, the alternate, Pit Fagan, has uh, agreed to uh, take the code, and he is off to the DataWorks Summit San Jose, middle of June. Yep, congratulations to Pitt. He also told me that this is going to be his first uh, big uh, Hadoop event he's going to, so uh, very nice for him. Indeed. And so I'm sure there are people out there that are damning and, and cursing us for, <laughs> for not selecting them. Uh, but we have a little runners-up prize for every single listener. And uh, it's only listeners because we're not going to be publicizing this uh, code outside of the podcast. Um, if you are interested in attending the DataWorks Summit, you haven't booked your ticket yet, and you're just umming and ahhing about it, use the code ROAR. 25 that's r o a r 2525 and you get 25% off the cost of the tickets so if you were if you were on the edge of booking and just thinking if only i could get it a little bit cheaper there you go yeah and it's a nice discount too because i've seen some codes flying around with 20% discounts but the 25 i think it's a slightly higher up there so roaring elephant going the extra mile for you yeah, 5% better than everybody else. Yeah, just to be sure, the R-O-A-R are all in capitals. I'm not entirely sure if these codes are case-sensitive, code case sensitive, sorry, but just to be on the safe side, do the capitals. Yeah, R-O-A-R-2-5. And um, good luck, and uh, maybe we should have a little meetup at uh, the summit with all the Roaring Elephant fans. Maybe. <laughs> All right, now that raffle is, uh, yes, tying up itself. That's almost done and gone away and being history. And the next raffle, which I already alluded to last episode, is going to be running these two weeks. And that's the raffle being sponsored by Sargi, a French company doing a lot of fun stuff with big data, helping their customers use the, the tools in Hadoop and everything to do fun stuff. And we'll have them on the podcast soon with an interview, so keep stay tuned for that too. But they have been uh, generously off, uh, offering to uh, sponsors as well. And for this raffle, you're actually able to win a year subscription to Safari Online from O'Reilly, the online bookstore with a lot of useful information in there. 
It's currently valued about 400 US dollars, so it's a nice price again. Now, this raffle will only run for one single episode, so only two weeks. So if you want to have a chance to get this one-year membership plan, do tweet or send us pictures of your meetups where you mentioned the uh, Roaring Elephant or anything you did mentioning us. Send it to us so we know about it, so we can give you a raffle ticket so you can have a chance to win that huge prize. Indeed. Great prize and uh, your chance to win it is by publicizing the wrong elephants. <laughs> Do your part. So I think that's all of the housekeeping out of the way. At least I don't know anything anymore. Yeah, I think that's it. I just want to give a quick shout out to uh, the IoT um, meetup bunch in uh, Espoo. Uh, I recently attended uh, an IoT meetup there, uh, talked a little bit about um, a variety of different technologies, NiFi, Spark, Kafka, and how you can use them all to uh, actually get some value out of IoT, and uh, handed out even a few Roaring Elephant <laughs> limited edition stickers as well. So yeah, all just good. so very clear good. on it, even though uh, Dave is publicizing Roaring Elephant, he is not getting any raffle tickets. Damn it! No, 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 that no, was no, my no. one chance. <laughs> all right, let's move on to the new section then. Uh, we're a bit light on news, I think, so we won't, won't have one of those other monster episodes we usually do and have a lot of news. And, well, yeah, no promises. Maybe. <laughs> where it ends. But I think <laughs> I'll go first. And um, as uh, listeners might, ha- might have uh, deduced from the title of this podcast, uh, the main section will be the second part of the Alan Gates interview on Hive, Apache Hive, and everything around it. And uh, in honor of that, uh, my first article is from the Hortonworks blog site and is called Ultrafast OLAP Analytics with Apache Hive and Druid Part 1 of 3. Now, we've been talking about Druid before already, and I've been talking a lot about it internally at uh, uh, the office and stuff because it's uh, an exciting part of Hive is being added here. And this is a first of a three-parter um, blog post on Druid, what's it supposed to be doing, how you're going to work with it, and I really wanted to get it out there so people can get to grips with this now this first part of the blogs is more of a uh, i won't call it marketing but it's a bit more about what is it about it doesn't really go into much detail yet i'm really hoping that the two next ones will go deeper but it's still it's a nice introduction for olap because not everybody who used to who's used to working with hive knows what olap cubes are so it gives you information about that and it's a nice introduction so Druid, it's going to be important, I think. So everybody's working with uh, SQL structured data on Hadoop. You sh- can do worse things than uh, follow this block set. Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the pieces that was interesting about it is um, it actually talks a little bit, and as you say, it is quite high level, but it talks a little bit about um, Druid sounds great. Should I use it for everything? And, uh, you know, the, there's a, a few, dis- there's a sort of a, a little bit of a disclaimer basically saying that Druid's SQL native implementation is very new. And uh, so there are, there are still some things uh, that can't be done yet. So those that, you know, if you try and do something that's uh, around a very heavy join, um, that will probably get rolled up into and therefore executed in uh, Hive rather than um, going down to Druid. But uh, yeah, it, nice, nice little intro. I think for people that have been probably in, you know, more of a traditional BI role for a, for a while, they'll probably be quite familiar with OLAP and quite excited about the potential for 
OLAP cubes um, as as part of this. For people that have maybe come along you know, purely in the Hadoop world, this could mm-hmm. well be uh, quite new. And therefore, yeah, I think I agree, very interesting for them to get up to speed yeah, on all the what it is and what it's about. Environment. You have this nice amalgate of uh, developers on one end and data analysts on the other end and database administrators all coming into one big melting pot doing fun stuff. This, uh, this stuff is always new for somebody. Uh, Bernard, have you uh, heard about Druid yet? Uh, a little bit. I must admit I'm not really the data warehouse guy. Uh-huh. So the whole OLAP stuff is something that I heard of, but I've never really used this. Well, nobody has. It's pretty new. So. <laughs> yeah, but even the other stuff that is long in the market <laughs> and the BI stuff and <clears throat> OLAP and cubes and all this stuff is very long there and I've never touched it. <laughs> yeah, well, if this takes the flight that I... Uh, should I say hope or expect one of the two it's going to take then everybody working at Hadoop is going to get in touch with this at some point yeah absolutely so if data warehouses will be kind of replaced by something that is based on big data you kind of need of that layer and Druid might be one of the options that you can use to achieve that as far as I know, in the Hadoop environment, it's the only option except for the commercial, I forget the name, there's a commercial product. At scale. Yeah, at yeah. scale. At scale. But uh, they don't do it in Hadoop, they do it uh, next to Hadoop. They take a subset from the data yeah. and then have caching layers in between and stuff. So it's not as as, as, as elegant, let's say. Yep, not as, not as cheap either. Anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> it's not about the money it costs, it's about the money it can make you. <laughs> That is true. It's all cost of business. Anyway, it. it's something, it's out there, it's going to be a major part of your life soon. Get in on the, on the, when it starts and uh, read the blogs. Yeah, looking forward to episodes two and three of that. We'll see if that uh, yeah. goes into a bit more depth. Yeah, we probably want to be, I won't be mentioning two and three here because I don't want to repeat uh, the same news articles every time. So uh, just, uh, dear listeners, take note and uh, follow it on your own pace. Fair enough. Over to me. If you have to. Yes. Excellent. <laughs> so I I must admit, I did struggle a little bit this week. It seemed like a little bit of a slow news week, but something did catch my eye. So I was looking through um, some of the Apache announcements and I came across a project that I just never heard of before. Uh, and it's uh, Project Apache Prediction I.O., um, so the announcement was that it's the uh, uh, 0.11.0 incubating release of this particular project. And I, because it wasn't one that I'd heard of before, I thought I'd dig into it and have a little look. And it turns out, I think it could actually be quite interesting. Um, so Apache Prediction IO, it's, uh, they describe it as an open source machine learning server built on top of a state-of-the-art open source stack that enables developers to manage and deploy production-ready predictive services for various kinds of machine learning tasks. That's where bingo. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit, a little bit. Um, yeah, and they do win in that case. Uh, but so there's links in the show notes. I definitely suggest you go and take a look at it. But essentially what you're looking at here is um, – let me have a quick bring up the architecture. So it's essentially built on uh, Apache Hadoop um, 272 or later, um, uh, HBase up to version 124, uh, Apache Spark uh, okay. 16, 
um, and Elasticsearch uh, 175. Hmm. And uh, we'll get we'll get into some of the versions a little bit later. That's a little bit wonky, maybe. But the the idea is essentially um, Prediction IO provides a framework on top of that. You know, fairly standard, fairly solid big database um, that then allows you to deploy a variety of what they call uh, engine templates. And they've actually built uh, this little template gallery available. Um, and so they have sort of a, a universal recommender template. So, you know, if you know, users that uh, viewed this um, and bought that and popular items and all those sorts of things that you might want to trigger um, – they have sort of recommendation templates. They have e-commerce recommendation templates, um, similar project templates, e-commerce recommendations, product rankings, complementary purchases, uh, a specific one around music recommendations, um, frequent pattern minings, and there's there's a few others. The idea behind this is that if you're using something like Spark, there's a whole bunch of different um, a sort of underlying libraries you can use. And you can hook these together in a variety of useful and interesting ways, and that's great. But not everybody wants to write everything from scratch. You know, why continue to reinvent the wheel every single time you want to um, look at something that's, um, you know, a recommendation engine against uh, an online system? So I thought it was interesting. I thought it could be useful and I quite liked the way that it was all kind of split out. So I'll talk about a little bit about the systems architecture now, uh, in a bit. But Jon, any thoughts around this? Does it sound interesting to you? Uh, yeah, it does sound interesting. I mean, when you first started talking about it, was kind of waiting for the Hadoop uh, connection, but then that uh, nicely fell into place too. Although on the page it does say that you need Apache Hadoop only if you need Yarn and HDFS, so you can even yep. do it without that. But if you have yeah. Spark and HBase, then I think it's easy to just put it in a Hadoop cluster. Yeah. Uh, looking at the little architecture picture there, they have a nice split between the real-time part and the background part, so that's yeah, nice nice too. Lambda architecture going on there. The one thing I'm particularly interested in, and I hope you have more information on that, is that uh, leftmost little item, a web or mobile app server. Because one of the biggest issues with Spark machine learning is still getting the machine learning algorithm up and running as a REST interface or some kind of socket you can call to score a, a data point. So I'm wondering if they're using something like MLeap or having their own thing in there. So that's something I'm looking forward to know. And the yeah. other question I have is, why Elasticsearch? If you've got Hadoop anyway, why not go Solar? <laughs> well, yeah, okay. So I'll answer the second question a little bit later when I get into <laughs> some of the things I think are a little bit wonky, maybe. But I also want to know what uh, Bernard thinks about this, because Bernard is more of the data scientist type. As he said, he's not the uh, database administrator. So uh, what's your first view? Uh, yeah, so the I completely agree with you. The web server part, how to operationalize your model, is one of the most important parts. So you mentioned MLeap. So what I saw is they have founded a company called Combust to continue with MLeap, which yeah. is a kind of a good sign. Mm -hmm. And um, if Prediction IO kind of helps with this problem, then this is, I think, highly appreciated because people can't just uh, put yeah, their web servers on top of the Hadoop cluster and hope it'll scale. It won't. 
Yeah, 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 right, right. The new Yarn stuff will have some uh, support for long-running services. I'm guessing that this is also going to be important for this thing. But uh, yeah, you're right. Scalability I, doesn't really include that, right? And it's not about technology and scalability. In big enterprises, it's about the domain it runs in. So the data domain is usually a complete different area, sometimes even from a network topology perspective, yeah. uh, compared to the systems of engagement where the web servers run. So connecting these two is sometimes pretty impossible. Yeah. So there needs to be a solution for that. And while you can put some models uh, and move them into the other domain by means of PMML or some other stuff, there are other models where it's much more difficult, where even flattening doesn't work because yep. it gets too huge. Yeah, so having a simple rest point uh, inside the data domain, which can be called from the other point, nicely firewalled off and everything. That's, uh, yeah, on a separate okay. server that can scale. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you need to push it out. And I wouldn't put it on Yarn, to be honest. It's a different beast. So uh, I would have a separate uh, machine for that that because it's a diff in a different production part of the company. So I would try to um, split the two areas and encapsulate data and system of engagement. Mm -hmm. So, Dave, so the good news is that I believe that that's exactly how it works. I'm not a hundred percent sure yet, and I've only um, I've only sort of really been uh, skimming through the the site to, to get a better idea of how it all hangs together. But they seem to have this separation between. Uh, what they call the event server, and you can have multiple event servers, which is the piece where the data is sent to and the the engines that are actually doing the processing, the engines being essentially the, the underlying Hadoop components that, are, that can be queried through a RESTful interface and actually send their predictive results back. It seems like the event server itself is something you can deploy completely separately. I've seen some mentions around uh, around uh, Docker instances for it as well. So I think the idea is that you can you know spin up as many of those as you like and hook them into the, the hook them into the cluster and interface with them through the REST API. So that seems to be the yeah. direction that it's heading. So from a uh, prediction perspective, usually when you start building your model, you have to transform your data. Mm -hmm. And if then you want to use the model, you have to transform your data. That's why in Spark, you have these pipelines. And the compelling thing about uh, MLeap is that they can export the pipeline definition so that you can feed in the same data that you fed into your model building before you transform the data uh, so that it makes it very easy to operationalize the model. Did you find something in... Prediction IO? Not yet, not yet. Um, it could well be there, as I say. I've only really skimmed yeah. over it so far. But I think the other piece that may give a bit of information around that is there's actually a set of uh, demo tutorials um, where they've got you know a, a comics recommendation demo um, and a text classification engine. Uh, tutorial, which gives some examples of how these things hook together. I can't see anything there that immediately yeah. um, jumps out at me, I must admit. But I, I think it's interesting because um, Prediction.io is one of the first Apache projects I've seen 
that is not trying to reinvent the wheel. They're trying to build something new, deliver some additional value on top of an existing big data stack. Um, so that was the, the, the thing that kind of immediately grabbed me. Um, we can have a conversation about some of the version numbers of things that they're using and why they're using certain things a little bit further down the line. But I think it was interesting that they're, they're not trying to do everything from scratch. They're not yeah. trying to re-implement I, the wheel. I think that is a sign of maturity So of the whole ecosystem. Uh, mm. As soon as the underlying technologies get mature enough, uh, you start to see these kind of, let's call them aggregators or uh, higher-level APIs that are now willing to uh, support that. So at the very beginning of Spark, the API wasn't that stable. So it means breaking changes all uh, the time. This is nothing you want to base your own project on. But as soon as these guys get into mature mode and get stable with the API, this is the starting point when you see these. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. A similar project, I think, that leverages what is there is Apache Beam. Don't know whether you've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've actually talked about it on a previous episode. Yeah, we're hoping ah, to nice. about that. Well, two days ago, they uh, published the first stable release. Yeah, saw that. Uh, congratulations, Apache Beam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, I've got a contact from the summit, a guy from Google who was willing to be on the podcast about that. We still have to set up a date. Oh, very nice. So that's coming. Anyway, the Prediction IO guys are apparently on a roll because I found a little article from February 9th. 2016, and they got acquired by Salesforce. Oh. So they got some good uh, backing there as well. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's actually there we this nice quote here. You can think of Prediction I.O. as my sequel for machine learning. <laughs> 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 Not entirely sure how to see I that. I hope but. it scales a bit better. <laughs> ah, <Okay>. come on. <laughs> You're being mean. I know, I know. I'm like that. So anyway, It's good to I have such kind of backing behind it because it means it's not going to be a flash in the pan. They're going to have uh, enough uh, push to do stuff because I think Salesforce is pretty good when it comes to uh, open source things, aren't they? I think that they've certainly improved a lot over yeah. the years, yeah. Yeah, they don't they don't do the gobble up and make it disappear anymore, I think. And considering this article is from uh, February 2016, this is a year ago, and the British and are still, uh, they're just incubating, so it means I haven't stopped. Yeah. Very good. All right. I don't have anything else on Prediction IO. Uh, over to you. Over to me. Oh, help. Uh, where are my notes? Where are my, my notes? Oh, yeah. Uh, I've got two more articles, which are a bit in the same, uh, the same discussion point I want to make with both of them. And the first one is a article from the Washington, uh, sorry, the Wall Street Journal. And it's called Why Big Data Hasn't Yet Made a Dent on Farms. And we've talked about it on the podcast as well, and it's been in the in the news, it's been forever in the news that uh, big farms are using big data to better plan their crop planting and, uh, I don't know, pesticide use and fertilization, whatever. And what this article does, it's pretty recent, from May 15th, mm-hmm. uh, is actually that uh, at the moment, these farmers have been inundated with so much data from sensors and drones, satellites, uh, smart machinery, that they just can't work with it anymore. It's too much. They don't know what to do with it anymore. 
And apparently investments in this whole area has gone down since uh, the big hype in uh, agriculture started. There's a lot of numbers in the article, so it's it's pretty well founded. And the thing I wanted to take from the article is just that in my professional life as well, I get these customers who see big data as the next round of magic. You just put a Hadoop cluster in there and all your problems are solved, right? You just click and point and it's done. <laughs> and well, this just illustrates that that's not the case. Yes, as uh, Bernard just mentioned, it is getting more mature, but it's not in a state where you just uh, go to the supermarket, buy a, piece, a, a CD with software, install it on your server and it runs, right? It, it needs a lot of planning. It's it's a toolkit. It's not something that just works out of the blue. And if even this, these big companies, because we're not talking about the little uh, little farms here, we're talking about these huge uh, agricultural uh, industrial industrial agricultural uh, organizations, if you like, they are struggling to, to just consume all that data. That's uh, that's that's uh, that's interesting. And the second article I have is from the Engadget called "The Pentagon is Hunting ISIS Using Big Data and Machine Learning." Uh, I would say, okay, of course they are. It's obvious, isn't it? Well, actually, what this article is about is that the Pentagon announced uh, on Monday, I think that was not this Monday, but last week's Monday, that they're going to start using machine learning and deep and big data and stuff like that to, again, process all the data they're gathering to drones and whatever sources they have. So even a huge financially backed institution like the Pentagon is still struggling with this. How do you have a hope of making this work if I'm just a small company? Yeah. So I think one thing I'd like to say is that <laughs> someone needs to tell the Pentagon that actually they're already using big data. They just <laughs> possibly don't know about it. Someone needs to fix their intel. Anyway, I, I, the, the point I think is valid, um, very valid, in fact, that we're still not – I mean, maturity has improved of the underlying components without a doubt, almost across the board. Um, and, but then we're also seeing new emerging components pop into the place as well. But the the level of, I deploy a Hadoop cluster in the cloud, for example, um, and uh, and then immediately, uh, you know, money starts rolling in. Uh, we're not quite there yet. In fact, we're a long, long way away from that. It, it's it, There is still a level of um, knowledge and intelligence um, you know, you, you you need smart people, data scientists, data engineers to, to go and actually look at the data and decide, um, you know, what the value of that is to look for those kind of correlations to, to try and find interesting patterns in the data. It doesn't just magically work itself. And the fact that uh, in your earlier article, you know, some of these organizations, I think the, it mentions a one of the better-funded data-driven startups, FarmLink LLC, entered liquidation in February. I mean, yep. if they were a company purely focused, presumably, around harvesting a variety of data sources and giving farmers insights about uh, how to plan for the next year, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, if they can't do it and they have all of this, presumably, all of this richness of data and presumably a variety of experts – um, something somewhere must be going wrong because one would think that if you've got if you've got a mature toolkit 
the right people and the right data, surely there must be some insight there to be had. Yeah, but I think there's a disconnect there. Because that company, as far as I understand from the article, actually was a manufacturer of machinery that did a lot of data capture. And from what I understand, I might be totally wrong here, but from what I understand, they just took that data they captured and gave it to the farmer and say, here's your data, have fun with it. They didn't do the yeah, next step towards the refining, the prediction, whatever that. And that's where the gap yeah. is today. There's a lot of companies gathering data, been going on for, for centuries, you might say, the gathering of data, but now storing it and making it available. But that next step, and that's also what I see with my own customers when I talk to in a professional life, that next step where you actually get that information, that value out of that data soup, that's still something that the other guy needs to do. And from the end customer, you expect the previous one to do it and the data provider, let's say, expects the next step to do it. And in the middle, there's a bit of a vacuum there. Nobody's taking that thing, doing it. Because that's also the difficult part, right? Because that's where you need the domain expertise. You need to know for the particular domain what's important and not. You need to have the data analyst, the data scientist that can actually do stuff with it. It's That's where the goal is. Absolutely. We are too much focused on uh, infrastructure and collecting and ingesting data. While this is a very important step, uh, it adds no value to a company. Yep. And as you mentioned, the domain knowledge is the problem and you have they have the domain knowledge, but you need to be able to combine the domain knowledge with the ability to dig that out of the data. Mm-hmm. And that is where most of the companies just start yeah, 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 yeah. to understand that. And there's also a lot of reticence to actually start spending money on there because the, the there is no guarantee on on profit here. Because when you go on these exploration kind of uh, projects, you take this bunch of data and you pay a couple of people a lot of money because data scientists, they're rare, so they're not cheap, just to see if they can get some value out of it without any guarantees. You're probably going to get something, but will you have yeah. break-even point? And it's, it, it's proven to be very hard to get companies, even R&D departments of companies, to actually go take uh, a risk and just say, okay, this team just spent six months on this data set and see if you can do something. Yeah, and you just need to look into the eyes of some customers. When I do that in my professional life and tell them, hey, a data scientist will work, let's say, 80% for the bin. Yep. 80% is just worth nothing. It's the 20% he's working for. Mm-hmm. Some of the people look very um, astonished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> not the kind of ratio they are used to. 80% for the bin and he gets money? Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different culture. And that's again and no that, guarantee. Yeah, that's again that, that maturity level. It's getting there, but it's not a finished product by any means, by any stretch of the imagination. There's still a lot of work, still a lot of uh, grind and sweat and tears to go in there before you get a nice bounty at the end. Yeah, and it's all a very um, use case tailored uh, approach. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to come up with a off the shelf solution yep. that fits to the problems customers have. From an infrastructure perspective, from an ingest perspective, you can um, condense it to some um, off the shelf tools. But as soon as it's about making value of data, mm-hmm. then there is nothing here at the moment, as far as I know. Yeah, but the off-the-shelf black box solutions, uh, well, there's somebody making money, and that's the vendor of the black box, right? <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> Hello, Watson. <laughs> well, I had SAP in mind, but let's not go anywhere. 
Hey, they fill a niche. They fill their. They have their uses as well, right? Yeah, sure. Anyway, any last thoughts yeah. about this? No, I think. Yeah, I think we've said it all. I think the what, one of the things that we regularly say when we're talking about use cases and talking about projects like this is, you know, start with something in mind. Don't just start to ingest the world if you don't know what you're going to do with with it. You know, start with a distinct project use case in mind, a couple of data sources that you need to to do something in order to to satisfy that use case. Don't don't just in, ingest the universe uh, and then see what use you can make out of that. That's not that's not the right way to do it. Yeah, it's a double method too, right? Because we we also tell customers start ingesting data because if you want to start getting inform value out of your data, you need to have the data first. So it's not wait until you know what you're going to need and then start ingesting it. Because then you have to wait six months to have enough data to make a machine running a machine learning algorithm work well. It's a bit in the middle, right? Don't ingest everything, yeah. Yeah. but don't wait to ingest anything either. And it's it's hard to yeah. find the right line there. And if you select the first project, first topic, try to find something that is relevant enough that somebody in the company has a benefit of it, mm-hmm. but yeah. make it not that risky that with a failure of this project, the whole initiative dies. Yeah. So that's a trade-off company. you have to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. wise words. Indeed. Okay, with that, we'll end our new section here. Uh, as usual, we're going to a little bit of new uh, news, no, in a little bit of music after this. And when the podcast comes back, we'll be switching over to the recorded interview with Alan Gates, co founder of Hortonworks, PMC member, and uh, overall interesting person. And in this part of the interview, he's going to go into more detail about the place of Hive within the full ecosystem, full Hadoop ecosystem. So, again, we had a lot of fun doing this interview with Alan. Thank you again, Alan. And uh, everybody, enjoy. All right. So, I mean, Hive isn't the only SQL engine on Hadoop out there. Um, there's there's a plethora. I think that's that's putting it politely. There's yeah. a plethora of SQL engines out there. Um, why why can't we all just get along? <laughs> well, so I'm not okay. So let me take a couple directions on that. Um, the first one is there are um, so you know some of them are representing different technologies, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, like Spark SQL is kind of not, it's a little bit different in that Spark is still really trying to be, at least in my view, a programmer tool and less of a, uh, end user analyst tool, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. still, you know, if you write much Spark SQL, you really still need to be, embed that in Java or Scala or something, which is perfectly fine for what it's trying to be used for, <laughs> but it's still kind of really aiming at, at programmers. And then you look at something, things like Impala, Hawk, some of the other SQL engines out there, those are a porting of traditional MPP technology to Hadoop. Hive is mm-hmm. trying to be kind of the best of both worlds. Be It can play MPP when it needs to with the LLAP stuff now, but it can also fall back to the more traditional Hadoop world of let's spawn off a job with hundreds or thousands of tasks and run those. 
because that's what MPP can't do well, right? It can't perform well in the case where a job's going to run for hours and you've got to spawn up or spin up lots of tasks and, and all that. So yeah, it, I'd say part of it is there's just different technologies and those are going to, you know, different technologies are going to have different strengths and weaknesses. The other thing is honestly, I think a little competition is good. Um, yeah, yeah. you know, Impala comes along and adds something and we say, Ooh, Hive should have that, um, or (laughs) the other way around. And, and we thrive off each other's ideas, even when we see, you know, we might take a look at how they implemented something and say, Oh, they did a better job of that than we did. We should pull that in or vice versa. So yeah, on some level, I suppose it would be nice if we were all working on the same project, but there's some upside to the competition too, I think. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't agree more actually. I mean, one of the things that certainly I say repeatedly on this podcast, in fact, we should do a super cut of that at some point is uh, that, that competition breeds innovation. And, you know, if you've just got one dominant player, eh, you know, not so much, you know, maybe you'll get, you will still get innovation happening, but I don't believe it'll happen at the same rate. And I think, yeah, I think healthy competition is good. Yeah. Well, and if we're not competing against each other, we're going to be competing. I mean, you know, uh, Amazon's bringing Redshift and Athena. Google's bringing BigQuery. We're going to be competing either inside the ecosystem or outer. Well, as is the case now, both. So that's. Um, I think that's fine. I think the bigger question is how do we make these tools work together so that it's not misery for the user, mm-hmm. right? Would, yeah. It shouldn't be the case that, okay, I have a system, I have Spark on the system, I have Hive on the system, and I somehow can't make them play with the same data. Once I have a table in Hive, if some other user on the system comes to it and they prefer Spark for whatever reason, or maybe it's better for that job, they should be able to access that just the same as I can access it in Hive. That, to me, is the more important question. And that's, you know, you see us doing work toward that to be able to serve Hive tables through LLAP to a Spark client so that it gets, you know, the table is still available, all the security and governance around it that Hive can offer is there, but um, others can bring the tools they like. Yeah, and open source is a great accelerator here, right? Because in commercial software, there's also competition. But since you can't, as you say, look at how the other guys did it and see, oh, that's nice. Let's see, let's see how we can integrate that with our product in open source. That that's what makes that possible, right? Yeah. Not only can I see the code half the time, I can just straight up steal it. <laughs> <laughs> Lend. Okay, it's called collaboration, Alan. Exactly. It's called collaboration. Yeah. But also the part of the, the connectors and hooking up into the other parties' uh, projects, that's only possible very easily because, well, the code is available and you can see how they did it and see how you can hook into it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I, I mean, like for Spark, we actually contributed the piece into mm-hmm. Spark to, you know, the pieces we needed into Spark to make it able to read LAP, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's true. We can um, play both ends of the, uh, or, you know, play in both projects there. Yeah. That's also why I see that all these open source projects are evolving so much more rapidly than the more traditional companies, let's say, let's call it that. Oh, I yeah, I think that's true. I think once you get a number of players behind mm-hmm. a given technology, you just, there's no way any one proprietary company can keep up uh, i mean open source will in time always run over proprietary i think for a given uh type of product because there's just so much 
you can bring so many different groups to bear on it at the same time. Yeah. 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 I mean, the other thing I think that open source does bring to the party and, you know, as, as we've said, it's not necessarily a negative thing, but it, it is that, that sort of splinter effect as well. You, you, you always tend to get an open source kind of, well, I like this particular thing, but I don't like the way it does this. And I don't like the way it does that. So I'm going to go spin up my own project. And, and, you know, it, it's in some ways you, you, you can't help but think, oh, if, if only, if only we could get along, if only we could just, you know, all work together on this. But the reality is that some of those, you know, some of those projects take off. Some of them do build their own communities and do spool up into something pretty interesting. And some of them, you know, die quietly on the vine. But it, it's all about the the overall health of the ecosystem, and I think the point you make around the integration between these different sort of tools is a sign, at least to me, of the the maturity of where we're playing, the maturity of the Hadoop ecosystem. I don't think that um, that sort of that integration story is is quite so mature in other areas of of open source tech. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. I think it's it's just like economics, right? It's good to let people try lots of ideas and see which one works because you don't know who's going to have the next good idea. Um, I I think you're right about the um, kind of a sign of maturity is starting to integrate more and more of the tools. And I, I hope that going forward, we see even more of that um, you know, especially as we move from you know, Hadoop traditionally was data at rest sitting in HDFS. The big data ecosystem now really encompasses also a lot of what we like to call data in motion, you know, streaming data, stuff in Kafka or other streaming technologies. As those become more tightly integrated, how do we make sure the query tools work across both? How do we make sure the metadata tools work across both? Um, I think there's still a lot to do there. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, you know, we've, we've already mentioned a, a few other kind of um, SQL engines that are out there. Are there any sort of elements right now that you've got your eye on that uh, you think, oh, I, I really like the way that's done in, in, you know, something in particular? Is there any kind of elements for any other SQL engines that you covet and you can't wait to uh, <laughs> get get get, in, get into Hive? Um. I don't know if there's, I mean, I can't wait to see Hive be more mature in terms of uh, really, truly covering all the SQL that my users want, right? That I, I, people quit saying, oh, but if only it had this or that, like, you know, procedural SQL, Hive has the bare beginnings of that. And, but often I get customers asking me, I'd like to trans, you know, I'd, I'd like to write stored procedures. Why can't I do that yet? So there's pieces yeah, like that. And- yeah, yeah, those sorts of things. I, I don't I don't know that I'm I mean, I guess that's coming from the more traditional relational database world. The other thing that I'd mentioned a little, and I don't know if SQL is gonna play well here or not, and I don't know if Hive has a place in this or is this or this is something that another SQL engine will do. I, I just really don't know. But I look at being able to do SQL on streaming data. And there's been some work on that. For example, um, Spark can do a little bit of it, can kind of do it. Um, Flink can do it a little bit. And I'm interested to see if 
if SQL translates well there. Now, it, before the big data world, it never quite did. Like there were a lot of people that tried to do streaming SQL and it had its own little niche, mar niche market, but it never really took off. I'm curious to see here if it does take off as streaming becomes more popular or if it's more something that, um, you know, people just decide, no, I'd rather write a Java program to, to process that. And again, I'm not sure that ever fits into Hive. That might fit much better into a streaming engine like Flink. But that's kind of an area that I have my eye on, and I'm just curious what the next couple of years is going to bring. Interesting, interesting. So, um, you know, one of the one of the sort of um, SQL engines, Hawk, obviously has got um, some elements of kind of machine learning in it, and you know, Microsoft SQL Server has started to to put some some machine learning actually within the engine. Do you think that's that's a direction that that Hive might go in the future? Do you think there's any interest in that? There are certainly people who'd like to do that. There's a project, um, I believe it's in the incubator called Hive. Is it called HiveML Lib or HiveML or something like that? I, I'm not sure I'm getting the name right, but so there are people who would like to add um, those kind of features to Hive. Um, I don't know if that belongs in Hive or if it's really better in places like Spark and TensorFlow. It just, there's a lot about machine learning that is not clear to me fits well in the SQL paradigm. So yeah. that's where, to me, I would rather make sure these tools work well together so that, you know, if I need to work on the data with SQL, I can use Hive. And then if I need to do some machine learning, I can grab that same data in Spark or TensorFlow or whatever and do that work. I, I think that might be a better split there um, than trying to apply and then trying to really kind of shoehorn the machine learning into a SQL format, which just isn't, at least in my opinion, quite right quite the right paradigm to think about it with. And when you talked earlier about uh, having store procedures in the Hive, would you then envision that store procedures would be able to call to other tools in the Hadoop toolkit to do things like that? Or would you even say, no, even there it doesn't have a space? There, you know, I, I honestly hadn't thought about that before. So I don't know, but I don't see why not. Like, why couldn't it call out to something else and hand a piece to another tool and and then bring it back to Hive? That would seem like a pretty reasonable thing to want to do. You got some problems with uh, possible deadlocks and waiting for external processes not coming in and procedures being pretty much a virtual table, if you like. That gives some uh, yeah problems. That's why on, my, on SQL Server, for instance, it's totally inside the engine. That way they control it completely and they didn't give it out like that. I can't really say how Hawk is doing. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. Hawk uses Madlib, I think, mm -hmm. but I don't know enough about how yeah. those two interact to... Mm -hmm to know exactly how it works either. Okay. So, I mean, one of the things that uh, comes up reasonably regularly, uh, and it's usually, it's usually, um, I, I hate to use the word fanboy, but I'm going to use it <laughs> anyway. Um, it's uh, particular fans of, of, of certain technologies um, are common in the tech world. And some, some of the concerns or some of the comments seem to be, um, you know, Spark will eventually destroy everything, including Hive, 
um, everything will every, everything will be Spark as, as as just as soon as we have you know multiple petabytes of memory in our servers, it'll all be fine. Um, <laughs> do you think that that that's ever ever really uh, going to be the case? Um, I can't see it myself, but uh, you know. Well, what let do you me. Think? I'll answer that in two ways. First, let me tell you a story. Oh, nice. When I first started with Hadoop. I, I had this amazing conversation with one of the people in the Hadoop team at Yahoo where he was explaining to me why I should never, ever do a join, why pig shouldn't have a join operator in it. Because if you were doing joins, you were doing it wrong. And, okay. you know, the, the new NoSQL way was to lay data out in this big table and, you know, do all your queries on that table. And NoSQL was going to eat the world. There was, you know, SQL was going to die. And so joins were the wrong way to think about it. And they're really, and I mean, I'm making fun of this person a little bit, but there really was this kind of feeling by some people in the Hadoop world early on or in the NoSQL world, I guess, not just Hadoop because there's other, plenty of other NoSQL technologies, that these were going to kill relational databases. I mean, to pick on one particular project, Cassandra, the reason for the name is in Greek mythology, Cassandra's who kills the Oracle at Delphi. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that choice isn't accidental. <laughs> I didn't um, know that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's actually a strange choice because her curse for that crime was to always tell the truth and, and never, and no one would ever believe her. So yeah. to name a database after someone that's never believed strikes me as a little strange. But anyway, that's, that's just a side note. But the point was, there was this feeling that Hadoop was going to completely kill relational databases. Well, obviously not. I mean, Partly, relational databases still exist, and I expect they will exist for years to come. And partly, relational databases came on to Hadoop and became a part of the system. So there's always a tendency, as you said, to kind of do the fanboy thing and like, oh, this technology is going to take over the world. And of course, that it's a good technology. Spark's a great technology. It will find its place in the world. Um, but I don't think it's going to kill everything else. The, the other point I would make is I'm not... It, so I'm not super involved with the Spark community. So I, people always ask me, you know, talk about the difference between Spark and Hive. One of the things that I have a hard time with because I'm not as, I guess, involved with Spark as maybe I should be, I don't quite understand what Spark wants to be when it grows up. Like, mm-hmm. I know what Hive wants to be when it grows up. It, it wants to be an enterprise data warehouse or a part of an enterprise data warehouse with in combination with other technologies around security and stuff. Spark feels to me more like it wants to be a programming tool and keep being a programming tool more than a data warehouse, right? It, I don't see Spark adding the security, the data governance, the those kinds of hooks and things that a true data warehouse is going to need. And that's where I feel like to say, oh, it's going to take over everything. It's like, you know, if you're one guy and you've got your data somewhere and you can work on it, Spark's a great tool. If you're a whole team and you want to figure out how to share and audit and do all those things that teams have to do, I'm not so sure Spark works well in that. And that's not a that's not an you know indictment of Spark. It's fine. It's not what it's mm-hmm. trying to be. But to me, that's where there's just use cases that I don't see them going after. Right? Yeah, there's something. Uh, maybe I'm totally wrong on this. I'd like to have your view on this. But Spark has been evolving very rapidly in the last. Test, let's say year, year and a half, and mm-hmm. Hive hasn't really had much of a limelight. 
Now, we're going to talk about the Data Summit, uh, DataWorks Summit later in the interview, but what my impression here was that Spark was kind of consolidating at the moment and all the new fancy cool stuff is happening in the Hive. So I'm kind of expecting a shift to happen now from people that went for Spark because, well, Spark can do everything, right? To see now, oh no, Hive is also still alive and well and kicking, so let's look look at that too. What's How do you, f- do you feel that? or? Well, I feel a little bit like we're talking to different audiences. I mean, Spark is, is a lot of its coolness is in the with programmers, coders. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's who it's enabling. And especially, I mean, I don't. Does anybody under forty code in Scala? I don't think so. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you're really kind of hitting at the the engineering crowd there. And so I think that's where you get a lot of that limelight and stuff. Hive is really talking, spending a lot more time now talking to data people in companies, in enterprises, in that kind of stuff. And so that's, it's getting limelight, but it, in a different venue a little yeah. bit. So in that sense, I don't know, I, I'm not sure we're going to get the the 25-year-old grad students to come back and go, oh, Hive's the coolest thing ever. They'll be on to some whatever's next after Spark. There'll be something new and newer and cooler here for them to do pretty soon. I'm sure, um, probably written in Go or something. But um, there. <laughs> oh, good God, no. <laughs> um, but there's, you know, I, I think Hive is continuing to build awareness in that, in the more, if you will, fuddy-duddy SQL group. <laughs> The fuddy-duddy sequel group that actually drives business. Yeah. Right, yeah, precisely. <laughs> that dr- that drives of, enterprise. Yeah, and not to say it doesn't have a place to play there, because I think it does, especially yeah. for data science. Yeah. But um, yeah. I, I think they're just talking to a little bit different crowds now. again to Alan. That's about all we have the time for today, and we hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back in two weeks' time with a brand new episode, but until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org, where you can find more information, including a feedback form and the rules for the raffle. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag, and contact us by email to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you in two weeks' time. Take care.